you'll see a map on the screen of Asia Minor, today modern-day Turkey. You'll notice uh, last time we looked at the town of Pergamum, and today we're going to look at the town of Thyatira, which was about 64 kilometers southeast of Pergamum. Thyatira was a commercial city. It had lots of trade guilds, and you say, well, what's that? A trade guild is roughly equivalent to our labor unions we have here. And so there were, as a result of that, there were lots of craftsmen and merchants living there. In fact, if you remember in the book of Acts, there's a woman named Lydia. It says Lydia was a seller of purple cloth, and she was from Thyatira. Uh, and so you need to understand how the guilds work and how, how these craftsmen and merchants were living here to understand what Jesus is saying. So uh, as a result of the trade guilds, you had a lot of idolatry and immorality that, w- that went along with this. And so they, uh, you can imagine if, if you were a Christian living here, uh, this would create a huge, major problem for the church in Thyatira. Because you see, guilds, uh, all the guilds had these patron gods, and the local god of Thyatira was the Greek sun god named Apollo. And as a result of that, they built a very special temple to Apollo. And, the, 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 of course, the guilds would often have these feasts to their false gods. And, and they would often come to the Apollo's temple to do this. And, and these were, by the way, these were not just your normal feasts. They were actually viewed as a religious occasion. It was, it was worship for them. And they would have meat would be offered to their false gods. And, and so as a result of this, the worshipers were actually sharing with the god. And sadly, the feast usually ended in wickedness and debauchery. And so you need to understand, this is the context that Jesus and the Holy Spirit are speaking into here. So with, with that little context, let's see what Jesus said to this church here in Thyatira. Look at uh, Revelation 2, verse 18. By the way, this is the longest message that Jesus had for any of the churches. Uh, Look at verse 18. And to the angel, the messenger, the pastor of the church in Thyatira, writes, the words of the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love, and your faith, and the service, and the patient endurance that your letter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality." Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart. And I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, To you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. 
the one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The proposition from this text goes something like this, that the Lord of the church, the head of the church, Christ himself, wants you to be intolerant of two things. He wants you to be intolerant of false doctrine and sin. Now, if you prefer to say that in a positive way as opposed to a negative way, <laughs> uh, here's how it, how it might go. That Christ wants you to be tolerant of sound doctrine and holiness. Now, the text mentions tolerance here, and uh, <laughs> Jesus wants us to be intolerant of false doctrine and sin. And it's interesting, when I looked up on my computer... And I looked for sin, and I, I took the word intolerant, and I put that in my computer and asked for synonyms. My computer told me that intolerance means bigoted, prejudiced, and narrow-minded. By the way, beware of your computer teaching you its worldview. And by the way, it doesn't come from the computer. The computer is an inanimate object. You realize there's people with false worldviews teaching this but that's that's what a lot of people in our world think so i went back to the really good dictionary 1828 webster dictionary he was a christian and he said intolerance just means not enduring difference of worship you're not enduring difference of worship that was one of his definitions i like that definition because jesus was not bigoted prejudiced and narrow-minded in the worldly sense. Let's see, speaking of Jesus, let's see what his character looks like here before we get to his message. We see, first of all, that Christ is the Son of God. That's what verse 18 tells us. He's the Son of God. Now, that is a title for the Lord Jesus Christ, showing that he is full divinity. He is divine. He he is God. Now that's important. He's laying it out there as the foundational truth. As he comes to his church, he is affirming his deity to this church. They need to understand who is saying this to them. You say, well, why? Because Christ is coming with some divine power to judge this church. But he's more than the Son of God. He, number two, he is the all-seeing one. Jesus Christ is the all-seeing one. That's the idea, that figurative language there in your Bible. You know it's figurative because it has the word like. right? He is, his eyes are like a flame of fire. It doesn't literally mean his eyes are on fire. So the, the point is that Christ has piercing, laser-like vision and he sees everything nothing can be disguised from him nothing's covered up nothing is hidden from his eyes he sees everything particularly in his church 
But he goes on to tell us that he is also the Holy One. And that's what it means when he talks about his feet are like polished bronze. So Christ's feet are shining uh, like like a highly polished bronze. By the way, there would have been bronze uh, people in a guild within Thyatira. They would have understood exactly what Jesus is talking about here. And it's depicting his purity and his holiness as he's coming to trample out the the sin and the impurity in his church. And so the the fire and the bronze there are emphasizing the the indignation and the righteous judgment of Christ. And as Christ does with many of the churches there in Asia Minor, he had some commendation for them. So let's think of the the good things he says here in verse 19. Uh, First of all, notice verse 19, he says, I know your works. They were working, and of course Christ knew this, because remember, he has the the all-seeing eyes. He he knew they were doing things, and they were ministering uh, in the church and in their community, and of course Christ, by the way, rewards accordingly. And so this was an assembly that had at least some hard workers that were known for their actions, and not just for their beliefs. And that is to be commended, by the way. Jesus commends you when you work for him. And don't just have some beliefs in your head. Theology should be driving your methodology. He also commends them for their agape love. That's your Greek word in your text there, agape. They were loving. They were showing love for God and showing love for for other people. And Jesus commends them for that. that. That needs to be commended. It needs to be commended. The Bible says that love is the greatest of the virtues. Number three, they were faithful. They were faithful. The Greek word there is pistis. Uh, that can also be translated as fidelity or faithfulness. You say, what, what's the point of that? Well, here's the point, friends. That the Christians in Thyatira were people who were dependable. They were reliable. They were consistent. And so we, we see that their works and their love here are motivated by their faith in Christ. And by the way, faith and love often go together in the Bible. And, and, and by the way, it's out of those those two, and you can combine hope with that because there's the great trilogy of uh, faith, love, and hope. But, but out of that, we see the other points coming along here. And number four, they were serving. Jesus commends them for their serving. and And that's the way it often is. Those who love are going to express that love in their action. You're not really loving if you're not living that out in some way or another. And so this church was heavily involved in ministry. They're heavily involved in serving other people. Jesus commends them for that. They were a people who were faithful. By the way, faithful people patiently endure in their faith. That's what Jesus says next, that they were patiently enduring. Uh, the word, the Greek word there for endurance means this. It's a, it's a capacity to continue to bear up under difficult circumstances. That's according to a Greek-English lexicon. In other words, the, the point, friends, is you, you carry a lot of burden with you, but you don't collapse under that burden. You're, God enables you by His grace to endure. That's to be commended. 
Jesus commends this church for that. But he has one more thing. It's kind of hidden in the text. Notice the church was also growing. And I don't mean by numbers. That's not what Jesus is talking about. Jesus doesn't care so much about the numbers. See, notice the, the, the text says at the end of verse 19 that your latter works exceeded the first. See, these Christians, yeah, they possessed a lot of great virtues, but Christ said the latter works were greater than the ones they did at first. In other words, they're growing. Their service is becoming more consistent, and their patient endurance is growing stronger. They're, they're growing in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. They're maturing in their Christian lives. They're advancing the cause of Christ. And so for that behavior, Jesus commends them. By the way, if that's you, you need to be commended. This is what should be happening in all of our lives. And so, uh, sadly though, not all was well in this church. By the way, the problem was not an, an, an external persecution. The, the problem with this church was an internal compromise. They were rotting from the inside out. And it wasn't the vicious wolves that were attacking the flock. But it was actually people from within their own congregation. And I have to say that the Lord Jesus Christ is on to the problem. His all-seeing eyes knows. In fact, he knew each individual, each individual who was the problem here. Look what Christ's condemnation has to say to this church. We see, first of all, that they violated the biblical teaching that women are not to be teachers in the church. By the way, that's teachers to men. It's perfectly legitimate for ladies to teach children or other women. But 1 Timothy 2.12 says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. That's the key phrase, over a man. And often, you ladies are better teachers than men. That's the way God designed you. You're good talkers and teachers. And uh, so... Notice it says, rather, she is to remain quiet. That's quiet in, the, in regard to teaching the men. So that's, that's what God expects. And they were violating that here. Because notice in verse 20 that Jesus says, I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is, is, she is teaching. She's teaching in the church, even to the men. And there's another problem here in Christ's condemnation, because he says, number two, they allowed a false prophetess then to not only teach, but what is she teaching? She's teaching immorality and idolatry. And so the church was permitting this false prophetess to influence the people. She's leading them into compromise, and it, by the way, it's not likely that she's really, her, her real name was Jezebel. I mean, how, how many people today really, went, you know, those of you who are parents, did, did, any, did any of you parents ever get tempted to name your daughter Jezebel? Really? I'm surprised. Why not? Because we, we don't name our children, if we have a son, we don't call him Judas. And if we have a daughter, we don't call her Jezebel. Because those are like, those are two, two no, you just don't go there. 
the poor child, you know, you're setting him up for disaster for their entire life by naming him this. And so not likely is she called Jezebel, but, but the, the name is, it seems to be symbolic. But nevertheless, she was a real person, okay? Uh, you say, well, who, who is this person? Well, you need to go back to your Old Testament in 1 Kings, and you find out that Jezebel was an idolatrous queen of Israel who enticed the nation of Israel to add Baal worship uh, into their worship of the true God, Yahweh. Uh, she was actually Satan's agent to corrupt God's people. And you say, well, how did she even get into that position? Because she's not an Israeli. Well, she she married into the position, and she married a guy, a lovely guy by the name of King Ahab. Yeah, poor King Ahab married Jezebel. And look what the Holy Spirit says about their wonderful marriage. In 1 Kings 16, verse 30, it says this, Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of Yahweh, more than all who were before him. I wonder why. It says, as, And as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal. Notice her father is a Baal worshiper. And he is king of the Sidonians. And went and served Baal and worshipped him. So she was not a good influence on Israel, certainly not a good influence on King Ahab. So you say, okay, why is Jesus mentioning some woman who lived like a long, long time ago? What does Jezebel have to do with this particular woman? <laughs> I'm glad you asked that question. Because the false prophetess here is doing something similar. She, she taught the believers in Thyatira to compromise with the Romans and and particularly the religion uh, of the uh, uh, the Romans and the Greek false gods and and uh, the various practices of idolatry that went along with the guilds and so the Christians they didn't want to lose their jobs and if you don't want to lose your job guess what you have to do you have to go along with the idolatry of your guild if you don't go along with your guild or your labor union, guess what? You get fired. It's kind of like some of you at your jobs. When the HR department, you know, you get one of those letters, like what happened at a, I used to work for a company in New Zealand, and you get the letter and they say, you know, when that guy shows up in the address, you have to, you have to call him this, and you have to use the female pronouns for that guy. And so you get really confused, and it's all based on how he dresses. And if you don't go along with the transgender uh, movement, guess what? You get fired. So just live your life by lies. Ignore reality so that you can keep your job. See how that works? By the way, if that hasn't happened to you, it will. It will. You're going to be pressured to do that, just like I was. And so th this is what this woman's doing. She's trying to teach the Christians, how do you keep your job? You don't get fired. So, hey, just go along to the party, enjoy the food that's been offered to the idols, and go ahead and commit idolatry so you can keep your job. Well, how did she teach this? 
How did she teach that? The same way the false teachers are teaching you today, by the way. Option number one is some false teachers will teach an antinomian view. Antinomian just means against law. Against law. So they teach you God's grace, and and, and they're arguing it really doesn't matter if you sin because God's going to forgive you anyway. Well, read Romans chapter 6. The Holy Spirit said something about that in Romans 6. God forbid. Right? Uh, another way is uh, option number two is some false teachers encourage you, as it's talking here, you just go and experience the deep things of Satan so that you can be a better witness for Christ. Right? You know, go to the pub and have some beer with, you know, your workmates and get drunk so that they can respect you and you can give the gospel to them. Right? Yeah, Christians are doing that, by the way. I know people who do that sort of thing. That, that's, that's what some false teachers do. They teach that sort of thing. And by the way, it's interesting when you contrast the churches uh, of Ephesus and Thyatira, it's interesting to compare them. See, the, the Ephesian church was uh, weakening in their love, but Jesus said they were faithful to judge the false teachers. While you have the people here in, in the church at Thyatira, they're actually growing in their love, but Jesus says they're too tolerant of false doctrine. <laughs> wow, interesting, isn't it? And by the way, Jesus is saying both of those extremes are to be avoided in the church. The, the proper thing to do is speak the truth in love, according to Ephesians. That's the biblical balance. You don't ignore the truth. You don't ignore love. You, you, you can have both at the same time. And so I've given you a little something on the screen here. I try to do, you know, the pendulum swing thing. Sorry, my graphic. I never took a graphic art class, all right? I know, it's really basic. Do you get the point, though? Avoid the pendulum swings here of unloving orthodoxy and loving compromise because Jesus hates both of them. He hates both of them. Uh, I guess... What, what you need to pursue is loving orthodoxy. Well, Jesus goes on to tell them, number three, that unless they repent, both she and her followers are going to suffer both sickness and death. There is consequences to sin. And the all-seeing eyes of Jesus sees it, and he's coming with judgment. You say, well, what sin did they need to repent of? Well, did, did you know the apostles in the Jerusalem Council addressed this very issue? It was already settled. They should have just obeyed. <laughs> because look, look at the conclusion here in Acts 15. Here's, here's what they came up with. It says, Therefore my judgment, and that's James, Apostle James speaking, Therefore my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality. That's the right conclusion. That's the sin that Jesus is telling them they need to repent of. And by the way, not only was the church at Thyatira tolerant of evil, but it was even proud. It was unwilling to repent of the evil. And so... The Lord Jesus gave the false prophetess time to repent. He is long-suffering. He is merciful. But the sad news is she refused to repent. And so now he's, 
he's giving her followers opportunity to repent. And his eyes of fire had, had searched out their very thoughts and their motives, and he's not going to make a mistake. In fact, the, Jesus is even threatening the, uh, to use this particular church as an example to all the churches. He, he said so. Sorry, I forget the verse where he says that. Uh, but he, he's threatening to use them as an example. In other words, to other churches to not tolerate evil. So Jezebel and her followers here uh, would be sentenced to tribulation and death. And by the way, in the Bible, idolatry and compromise are pictured as fornication and unfaithfulness to the marriage vows. And so Jezebel's bad bed of sin, I should say, was going to become a bed of sickness, Jesus says, and he's going to kill with death. That just means he's coming with pestilence. He's coming with disease. He's going to use that sort of stuff to, to bring his judgment on them. See, God would judge the false prophetess and her followers once and for all. One commentator said this, quote, The severe judgment promised to the false prophetess and her followers reveals Christ's passion for a doctrinally and behaviorally pure church. He will do whatever is necessary to purge his church of sin, even to the point of taking the lives of false teachers. That sobering reality should cause all her purport to be teachers and preachers in the church to be certain they are speaking the truth. It should also warn Christians who are following false teachers to repent of their sins lest they face divine chastening. End quote. So it's not just to the pastor of the church the warning comes to. It's to you as well, friends. Jesus is saying, do not be tolerant. You say, well, what are the signs that Christ might be coming to correct our church? We need to look at ourselves. Look at ourselves here. What are some signs that Christ might be coming to correct us? Number one, uh, there might be a desire to fit in with the culture. That's not a good thing. It, you know, we're, we're growing up in a culture that embraces a worldview called postmodernism. What's postmodernism? It's, it's a whole worldview. It's, a, and it's an entire system that basically teaches you can't really know anything for sure, that truth changes, and as long as you believe it personally enough, you know, hey, that's good for you. That's, that, that can be truth for you, but... Um, you know, there is no absolute right and wrong, even though that's an absolute statement. You know, you just, you can't allow me to believe, just let me alone, right? Allow me to believe what I believe, and if you don't do that, then you're a racist, and, and you're a bigot, and you're intolerant. You know, that's, that's the, the greatest virtue these days is so-called tolerance. And so here, friends, we have to desire to please Jesus above the culture and not just to fit in with the culture around us. And if you do, then that's a sign that Jesus needs to correct us. Number two, a failure to rightly define sin. Now, some people no longer call sin what the Bible calls it. My favorite definition is in 1 John 3, I think it's verse 4, where God says that sin is lawlessness. The Bible defines sin as rebellion and treason and spiritual adultery. It's actually breaking God's law and His commands. But uh, you know what we do? 
we, the culture that is, we just come up with new words for sin. See, sin is uh, no longer sin, it's now a struggle, it's, it's a disease, or you have a disorder, or you just put ism at the end of something, and, and that's now how we define sin, right? So you're no longer a drunk, you're just, you just have alcoholism, right? You see what they're doing? So you now have a disease, you don't have a sin problem. And that's, that, that's a sign of Jesus needing to come to correct us. And number four, forsaking absolute truth for relativism. It's really sad because I've seen uh, the Barna Research Group showed that uh, some really sad statistics when they said, that I'm quoting them, only 44% of born-again adults are certain that absolute moral truth exists. Barna also discovered that only 9% a born-again teenagers believe in absolute moral truth. Do you see the problem? That, that's a sign that the Lord of the church needs to come in and correct us. And then number four, I'll explain this one, that moving close-handed issues into open-handed ones, that, that's coming from C.S. Lewis. See, A Christian should believe there are open-handed issues and closed-handed issues. And it's dangerous when you move uh, the the open open and closed-handed issues around. And, And it begins, by the way, when you actually question foundational biblical doctrine. And then those questions, they you start thinking about them, you consider them, your suppositions, or I should say, uh, your suppositions can become presuppositions. And then you, you're turning arguments into a defense, and then guess what? Before you know it, you're, you're into a full-blown-out heresy. Because here's what C.S. Lewis said, quote, An open mind in questions that are not ultimate is useful. Right? Uh, th- things that are not ultimate, th- thinking about those is useful. But an open mind about ultimate foundations, either of theoretical or practical reason, is idiocy. If a man's mind is open on these things, let his mouth at least be shut. End quote. Right? So the, the, the things that are clear in Scripture, like the deity of Christ, for example, are not open for debate. And, not, and, and they're not open for argument. Those are closed-handed issues. And then the last one, failing to take a stand for truth. What does the Bible say? about how you and I should react to heresy. Heresy is just false teaching, right? Here's what the Bible says in 1 Timothy 6. It's on the screen for you. Uh, The Bible says this, O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge, for by professing it some have swerved from the faith. Titus 1 says, They must be silenced. That's the false teachers. Must be silenced. Therefore, Rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. So what does God want you to do? You don't tolerate false doctrine and sin. God tells you to not be silent, but to rebuke them sharply. To guard the deposit. To avoid the evil ones. So, if you fail to take a stand for truth, then Jesus needs to correct us. But the good news is, not everybody in the church was tolerant of false doctrine and sin. So let's see what Christ said to the faithful ones. 
in his counsel here in verses 24 and 25. Basically, Jesus gives this command to the faithful. He says, hold fast. He told them to hold fast. In other words, you keep resisting the evil until I come with judgment. He says, I'm coming. So hang on to what you have. Don't give up. It's going to be hard. But I'm coming. And Jesus is indicating the hold by holding fast. He's, he's indicating here it's not going to be easy. It's not going to be easy. But I am coming. There is hope. <laughs> That's his basic counsel. There's only one command in those verses there. And so let's look at Christ's challenge. Now please uh, notice here that Christ's challenge is to those who conquer and keep his works until the end. You'll, you'll see that word conquer keep coming up. in verse, Like in verse 26, he says, The one who conquers and keeps my works until the end. Uh, he, he, uh, these are things he keeps saying to these churches. You say, well, what's the point? Well, Christ is telling you what describes a genuine Christian. A genuine Christian is one who conquers. A genuine Christian is one who has steadfast obedience. That is a mark of of a genuine Christian. So friend, does that describe you? Are you a conqueror? Are you a steadfast, obedient Christian? And if that does, then you need to be encouraged by Christ's promises here. There's a couple precious promises. Let me highlight for you. Number one, that to conquerors or Christians, same thing, that Christ will give authority over the nations. That's what Jesus says. I'm going to give you authority over the nations. And what's what's he referring to there? Well, that promise, Jesus is actually quoting from Psalm chapter 2. Look at verse 7 here. Put it on the screen again. Uh, Psalm 2 verse 7 says, I will tell of the decree, Yahweh said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. So you can see why Jesus says in verse 27 here in Revelation 2 that he will rule them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. So what is Christ promising, friends? You say, what's the point in all that? Here's the point, friends, that Jesus is promising you participation in His millennial kingdom. By the way, you could probably guess by that very statement, I am a premillennialist. I do believe in the thousand-year reign of Christ on the earth. And, and I believe that uh, th- this is for, for this time period when Christ is saying all who remain faithful to Him are going to rule with Him during those thousand years on the earth. So what can we do then since... You say, but, uh, oh man, you say, that's kind of weird. I mean, how can I help Christ? Does does Christ need help? No, of course He doesn't need help. But those people who rule with Christ are going to help people during this time. You're going to promote holiness and righteousness during this time. And all this is possible because Christ is the one delegating His authority to you. How cool is that? You say, is that in the Bible? Yeah, there's another... Jesus says so in Revelation chapter 20. Look at this. In Revelation 20 verse 4 says, Then I, that's referring to the Apostle John, saw thrones and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. 
Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image, and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. Those people, it says, came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. So friends, you have a promise if you are a conqueror. If you are a steadfast, obedient Christian and persevere to the end, Jesus says you will be with him during his millennial kingdom and reign with him. What a wonderful privilege. There's a second promise from Jesus. He says to conquerors or the Christians that he will give the morning star. There's a lot of debate on that. Right? Who, who, what is the morning star in verse 28? Who or what is the morning star? Well, <clears throat> one rule of Bible interpretation is use other portions of Scripture to interpret Scripture. <laughs> so I think the best way to interpret the morning star is to use Jesus' own words. You say, did Jesus talk about the morning star? Yes, he did. Look at this in Revelation 22. Here's what Jesus says. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. There you go, friends. You don't have to guess what Jesus is talking about. Because Jesus has just defined what the bright morning star is. And since Jesus is this morning star, you say, okay, that's great. Now we know who it is and what it is. What does that mean for me, though? Glad you asked that question. It means, it, my short answer in Silsby language is, you get Jesus. In other words, Jesus is promising himself to you, friend. You say, how do I know that? Because Christ promised the Christians himself in all of his fullness. And that is a great promise. And although the morning star has already dawned in our hearts, Peter, Apostle Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 1, the good news is that someday you're going to have Jesus in his fullness. The Bible promises us this. And that is really good news. In fact, that is really awesome for, as far as I'm concerned because Jesus is my greatest treasure. There is nothing greater than Jesus. Uh, now, Here's the problem. Even though he's my greatest treasure, I want to know him fully and completely. I don't know him fully and completely yet. And so, friends, are you tired of looking at a reflection? Because at the moment, I'm just looking at a reflection of Jesus. I, I am. Are, are you tired of only having part of Christ? Or do you want all in his full fullness? Well, I certainly do. And so if you're ready for more of, more of Christ, friends, i got some really good news for you. Because look what this verse here has to say about a relationship to Christ. In 1 Corinthians 13, verse 12. Look at this. For now we see in a mirror dimly. You're just looking, in other words, you're just looking at a reflection in a mirror. You don't have the fullness yet, but then face to face, 
Now I know in part, but then I shall full, know fully, even as I have been fully known. So the promise is, there is coming a day when you will get Jesus. And not a reflection, and not part of Him, you get all of Him. And so friends, do you understand Christ's challenge? He's given you a very precious promise. And the point of all of that is, Christ wants you to be faithful. He wants you to endure to the end. He wants you to be a conqueror. And friends, He does not want you to tolerate false doctrine and sin. In fact, he's, He wants you to be intolerant. He wants you to be intolerant. So in Him, friend, you have the best reason to live for Him. And in Him, if necessary, you have the best reason to become a martyr for Christ. So here's Christ's conclusion in the last verse. He gives you another command. Christ simply says right at the very end in verse 29, to hear. Christ's command to you, friends, is to hear. You say, hear what? You hear what the Holy Spirit is saying to the churches. You say, my friend, the Holy Spirit has spoken to you. He's given you a very serious message. The message is be intolerant of false doctrine and sin. The question for you is, will you obey? Will you obey? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for giving us Jesus. We, we see that He is the Son of God. He's the, the Holy One, the One who, who is all-seeing and knows all things, even sees into our very hearts and our minds, knows our motives and our thoughts to the, the very deep, dark parts of our inner being. May we really believe that and live like that. And so may we be like Jesus and not tolerate false doctrine and sin, but may we be totally loyal to Christ and His theology and what He has taught us in God's Word. Enable us to do this even in, in dark days, difficult times when our culture and, and our own sin nature in this, this world and Satan is, is throwing fuel on the fire and, and uh, try, trying to get us to sin and to tolerate evil. But deliver us from evil Deliver us from temptation. May we be faithful. In Jesus' name, amen.